I'm Marty Moss Cohen. Welcome to The Connection. Ross Gay gave himself an assignment. Notice something that gave him delight. Write about it quickly and in longhand every day for a year. The book of More Delights is about paying attention to the world around him and being attuned to joy and gratitude. It's a sequel to the book of delights, which he wrote in 2020. Ross Gay joins us today to talk about the connection between joy and sorrow, which he compares to the underground fungal networks of the forest. He teaches writing at Indiana University and grew up in Bucks County, a diehard fan of the 76ers. His book-length poem, Be Holding, deconstructs Dr. J's famous gravity-defying baseline scoop. Now, this may seem like an odd time to talk about joy and delight and love and happiness and gratitude when we're faced with so many crises and so much vitriol. But if not now, when? Ross Gay joins us to talk about finding joy and gratitude in surprising and everyday places, why it's important to give them the respect and attention they deserve, and how they are connected to our survival. And Ross Gay, it's a great pleasure. Nice to have you with us today on The Connection. Glad to be with you. Thank you. You're very welcome. This is your second delight book. Are you getting better at finding things that give you delight? <laughs> well, I mean, I and I talk about this a little bit in the first book. Like I, I feel like I've kind of trained myself to be able to do it. When I first started the pro- the project, whatever you call it, the practice or whatever, in uh, August 2016, I I was a little bit nervous because mm. I gave myself the task of writing every day, which I don't do. I'm not a daily writer. Um, but I think partly I gave myself also the constraint to do it quickly so that I wouldn't feel pressure to make something. <laughs> right. To get it over with, right? Get it over with. Yeah. Um, and then within a couple of weeks, I realized that when I was sort of gave myself the task of, as I say, like attending not only to what delights me, but what I love, it, it became pretty uh easy. It was, it was all around me. You describe it as a practice, the way we think of meditation or yoga as a practice. Is that how you see it? It is. You know, I used to, um, I think at first I was thinking of it as a discipline. And I think <laughs> that may have appealed to like this part of me that, <laughs> that I'm not necessarily trying to <laughs> to grow up anymore. You know, I've been a coach a lot and all that stuff. But um, I, yeah, I kind of thought like, oh yeah, it's practice. It is like um, the equivalent of, um, you know, working on your foul shots to me. You know, you do more, you shoot more foul shots, you're probably going to get better at shooting foul shots. I do want to get to sports because I know it's a big part of your life, but it looks like we're already there in our in our conversation. Uh, you played football in college, is that right? I did. I played up at Lafayette College, yeah. And were you, how, I mean, you must have been good to be on the team, right? I was all right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah, I was all right. I was all right. Yeah, yeah. Do you have the bruises to, to prove it? You know, my shoulders are kind of a, uh, but we'll see. You know, I hope, I hope, um, I know CTE jokes are not like what you're supposed to make. No, no, no. No, but, but, but uh, we'll see. It seems to be holding up all right so far. Well, I didn't notice any football essays in your book about delight. <laughs> I mean, I, but I do want to say, like, I mean, I had like such profound loving relationships, you know, in, in, playing football and sport generally it means a lot to me in my life so all that aside you know I have like really dear um really dear important parts of my life that emerged from that experience still are emerging from that experience I'd love to have you read a a section uh from your new book and this is a, a piece called throwing children yeah 
Go ahead. Throwing children. It is some miracle, some delight, when a kid who has a hard time becomes a kid who's having a good time, in no small part thanks to you throwing that kid in the air again and again on a mile-long walk home from the Indian joint as her mom looks sideways at you like, you don't need to keep doing that because you're pouring with sweat and breathing a little bit now. You're getting a good workout. But even though it's sometimes very hard for you to believe, you say, I'm good, I'm good. Because the kid laughs like a horse up there, laughs like a kangaroo beating her wings against the light because she laughs like a happy little kid. And when coming down and grabbing your forearm to brace herself for the time when you will drop her, which you don't, and slides her hand into yours. And she says for the 40th time, the 50th time, inexhaustible her delight, again, again, again and again. And you say, give me till the redbud tree or give me till the persimmon tree because she knows the trees. And so quiet, you almost can't hear through her giggles. She says, okay, till the next tree. When she explodes, howling, yanking your arm from the socket, again, again, all the wolves and morning doves flying from her tiny throat. And you throw her so high, she lives up there in the tree for a minute. She notices the ants organizing on the bark and a bumblebee carousing the little unripe persimmon in its beret. She laughs and laughs as she hovers up there like a bumblebee, like a hummingbird up there giggling in the light, like a giddy little girl up there the world knows how to love. Mm, I really love that. And thank you for reading that. And that truly yeah. happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's just describing a walk. It's just a simple little walk I'm describing, yeah. Our listeners don't know that there's almost no punctuation there. I mean, it's as if it's one uh, one movement that just continues through the through the piece. Yeah. And it's sort of it feels like as I was reading it, I was sort of, you know, I'm learning how to, this is a new book. So I'm sort of learning how to read these things out loud. And that it did occur to me that partly the. I think the experience of the essay is tr the essay is trying to sort of make a very the quickness or the sort of coherence or something the kind of streaminess of the of the experience come through. The essay is trying to contain that sort of streaminess, you know, something like that. Well, and I love the fact that once she's sort of almost frozen in the air, she gets to see <laughs> these teeny tiny little things. <laughs> I know. I love that too. That just sort of happened in the process of writing. I was sort of picturing this kid who I was throwing really high in the air. Right, right. I was sort of picturing, and I had to occasionally like be like, oh, heads up, there's a tree. So, so I was loved the idea of her get, getting caught up there and kind of like just hovering for a while. I loved it. Well, and there's a bit of danger too involved in something like that, right? Yeah, it's like a lot of fun stuff. <laughs> you could fall. <laughs> I mentioned this in my introduction, but I wanted to talk to you directly about it because it's, I, I know you want to bring a seriousness to things like joy and happiness and gratitude and, and delight. And yet it does feel as if, you know, we are so consumed with almost the opposite of that. There's so much anger, so much vitriol. There's so many, there's so much suffering in the world. How do you struggle with that? Um, I mean, I think... Suffering is like one of the conditions of people, et cetera, not just people. And I feel like, um, you know, to me, in a basic way, like joy, joy does not emerge absent suffering. Joy is actually the way I think of it 
it's a way of, it's something that emerges when we actually sort of tend to one another's heartbreaks and tend to another to one another's sorrows. So it's not like it's um, aside from or outside of suffering. It feels in a way like joy is the evidence of how we care for one another in the midst of our suffering. You know, it's one of these things where I sort of feel like um, heartbreak. It's, you know, everyone's heartbroken. You know, sure. <laughs> we don't get, sure. we don't get away from that, but there is a kind of, you know, it's hard to even articulate um, where it comes from, how it emerges. But, there is, you know, part of me thinks it's like, you know, it's good marketing and stuff. But um, everyone's heartbroken. And 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 you don't really get out of it, you know. I mean, not that you don't really get out of it. It seems to me you don't get out of it. And it feels to me like one of the moving opportunities of our lives is to, is to sort of wonder or or maybe to walk around with that understanding. Like, oh, yeah. Even that person I disagree with hmm. is heartbroken, you well, know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And even going deeper, you, you, you talk about as as tied in a way to our survival. Oh, fundamentally, yeah. It feels like that, you know, because ultimately really what it is, I think, it is noting that that ultimately and fundamentally we're connected, you know, and... um and everything else is a kind of, uh, is a, it's a version of a lie, I think, you know? A version of a lie. A version of a lie, yeah. You know, like we have, but the thing is, we have to practice understanding that we're connected. You know, we have to practice understanding that, you know, the light from the sun isn't just like cool because you get to like <laughs> go, go to the beach that day. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's what makes stuff grow, you know? It's like the trees are not just nice because, you know, birds live in them. They help make the air, you know, whatever. A biologist could say what, what it really is. But all of these things, we are connected to every everything. And it feels like there's a kind of, you know, it's a, it feels like a practice to our, to witness that, to notice that, to stay with that, you know, to, to believe that. It's funny. In reading your book, I, you know, I Scribbled down these words, joy and love and gratitude and delight and pleasure, you know, trying to figure out, so what do these actually mean? And I kind of landed with the help of somebody, this, this idea of joy, meaning meaningful pleasure. Does that fit for you? Maybe, but the thing is, I mean, I think meaningful pleasure could, could emerge from joy, but I have, I've had feelings of joy, as I suspect you have and a lot of other people have, at funerals. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it doesn't necessarily, it might, it might be pleasure. Um, you know, like sometimes like the meal afterwards is really pleasurable and pleasure is itself a kind of interesting word or term, but there, but the meaningful right. is, is seems like the part, like, you know, like funerals and, and uh, you know, whatever weddings or something, births or something, they're all sites, you know, these sort of ceremonial places, things where joy happens. It's not like one is more than the other in my experience. And, and which indicates to me that it's also through our sort of heartbreak, you know, that, that we get to joy or that we enter joy, you know. I was thinking of some of the funerals I've attended, not all of them, but some of them laughing as much as crying i mean almost yeah. like interchangeably uh w with the same sort of emotion but it just showed up in a different expression totally totally yeah yeah there's 
someone told me this. It's just so moving to me. It's still kind of like uh, puzzling to me. But this person, I maybe as I was starting to write about Joy or something explicitly, this person said, you know, she was like watching her kid play in a puddle and the kid was learning newly, like saw her reflection in the puddle or something. And the mom was um, watching this happen and whatever, the son was out. And she started weeping, you know, at mm witnessing the child in this sort of experience and she was like I think that was joy <laughs> yeah and I and I was sort of like oh, yeah it sounds like it to me like one of the many sort of you know kinds of joy or something well I'll tell you what let's take a very short break and then we'll get back to our conversation today on the connection and again Ross Gay is our guest he's a writer he's a poet I have three of his books scattered on my desk here one called Inciting Joy a brand new one called The Book of More Delights which is a follow-up to a book he wrote a couple of years ago called The Book of Delights and I also have opened up uh, a book of it's actually a, a hundred page poem called Beholding and again about uh, Dr. J and a very famous shot he made while playing for the 76ers. We've got much more to talk about after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at PennMedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen talking with Ross Gay about joy and gratitude and delight and surprise. And uh, I want to read just one little section because I don't want people to go away just to think you're just this happy, joyful guy all the time because you write. Marty, Marty, can I, I I wanted to answer a little bit more that last question. Oh, sure, sure. Go, no, go. Somebody actually do the thing you're trying. Okay, fair enough. It's sort of like why in the midst of, you know, um, suffering, how or why would we um, think about joy or think about X, Y, and Z, you know, gratitude, et cetera. Partly the reason, like just in terms of like sort of, I mean, the goodness of our hearts, the good feeling in the heart, I suspect, but also the kind of utility is that the feeling of gratitude and the feeling of joy and the feeling of delight, I think they all emerge from an understanding of our connection Hmm. and the understanding and the practicing of our understanding of our connection inclines us to share with one another. It inclines us to care about one another, which is to say it inclines us to, to the extent that it's possible to reduce the suffering that we're bemoaning. You know, so that's the sort of that's the sort of like, in a way, like a nuts and bolts. Oh, yeah. The reason we talk about joy is because we're talking about connection, but because we're trying to deepen our connection. Well, and I think that's interesting because it's so easy to kind of toss off these these feelings that we associate with something positive as if they didn't have the kind of gravitas of of melancholia, for instance. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. But I was sorry. Thank you. No, 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 that's okay. F- fair enough. I, I was going to just read this section where you just say, uh, dear reader, lest you understand, l- uh, lest you are under the impression that your humble guide is always delighted, let alone some s- kind of sage of delight, I need to tell you, I am not. So it's not as if you go through life delighted, happy, in love. 
No, no. And I, I laugh because that's about the Macy's Day Parade. <laughs> that's about the Macy's Day Parade. Yeah, which you hate, Macy's, right? <laughs> yeah, which I hate. And I hate, and I sort of, and I'm in a mood, you know, I'm in a state and I'm with my dear mom who loves the Macy's Day Parade. But I'm sort of, I can't help but think of it as like this kind of consumer destruction, uh, like a misery fest. And I, and I'm sort of like going through it while in the midst, you know, being in the midst of uh, having a very lovely time otherwise with my mother. So, yes, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting to me about this book is that it doesn't it, it has there's no like desire or interest in actually turning away from heartbreak. You know, um, it, there's no, it's just not part of the the project. The, pro, the project is the sort of in the midst of heartbreak, in the midst of pain in the midst of sorrow to continue or to learn how to and continue to articulate what you love, you know, which may in fact be connected, probably is connected to the heartbreak and the sorrow. Well, in fact, you have a wonderful metaphor. I've used it several times, but this, this, you know, fungal network of, of trees that we're learning about in forests where they do, in a sense, they are interconnected. They do support each other uh, as yeah. we learn more and more about it. And you, you use that as a way for us to understand how joy and sorrow are connected. Yeah, I love that. I Me love too. that that fact that we're learning and that metaphor too. That it's there's all of this um, there's all of this connection that is beneath our feet, or you know, or is that we can't see necessarily, and and it is it is you know how how we stay alive you know in a way that's what gratitude seems to me to be like paying attention or to to witness even the way that what you cannot in a million years articulate has cared for you or will care for you i, I wanted which, to no go ahead you to, which inclines you to care which inclines you, know? you to care yeah i wanted to ask you about black joy and i actually went to the uh, smithsonian national museum of african american history and culture to sort of get a, a definition of definition if i could describing it as resistance resilience and reclamation of black humanity and and the museum goes on to say when people live in a world that devalues them because they are black or brown as well as dismisses their contributions to a larger society black joy is and has been an effective tool that has allowed individuals individuals and groups to shift the impact of negative narratives and events in their favor. Can you speak to that? Well, I can say one thing. I, that's nice. That's nice. Um, and but one thing is that that there is a way that resistance is always sort of <laughs> foregrounded, you know, with instances of black, lots of things. And, and I resist that, actually, hmm. you know, hmm. because in a way it sort of suggests that whatever the um, that that white supremacy say um or you know whatever you know whatever um i want to curse not terrible thing is the ground of our lives and and my and my sense is that it you know joy is larger than than um then the joy is larger than the brutality in a way. So I sort of like the, in a way, the resistance foregrounds the oppressor, say. And that's something that I, I have a hard, I have a hard time with. I have a more complicated relationship with that. And here I do want to shout out a book by a writer named Kevin Kwashi um, called Black Aliveness and wow. the Sovereignty of Quiet, two books actually. Um, and he, he sort of talks about, you know, that, that in fact, not everything is resistance, you know, not everything is resistance, you know, 
and joy among Black people is not necessarily dependent upon the terrible things that, you know, they've endured, you know. I appreciate that. I mean, I think that's a fascinating and important distinction that you are drawing there and, and also your resistance to this this idea, I guess, or this definition of black joy. Yeah. Let me just quickly reintroduce you, and that's, uh, again, Ross Gay joining us today on The Connection. He's a writer. He's a poet. I've got three of his books uh, strewn all over my table here. The Book of More Delights, which has just come out, uh, Inciting Joy, which came out about a year ago, and a um, a 100-page poem about Dr. J called Beholding. You grew up in uh, in Bucks County, and and you write in uh, Inciting Joy about your dad, Mm-hmm. Um, and you say you had a difficult relationship, but you go on to say not always, but often, and then you describe things kind of thawing later on in life. Um, tell us about your dad. My dad was amazing. He was like this lovely, loving, wonderful, imaginative, um, you know, sort of heartbroken dude, um, who every single day, the older I get, the more I'm like, oh, I know this guy. Oh. He's like me. Because <laughs> you're becoming like him? or Totally. You, you see, totally. I, like, yeah. And the thing said as a child that could feel like frustrating or, you know, irritating or enraging about my dad. Now I'm like, oh, God, like his his insecurities. Oh, I know that. I understand that. Or like, you know. If, if he could be a little arrogant or something, right. I'm like, oh yeah, I know when I'm arrogant, I'm feeling like a little, I'm feeling a little small or I'm feeling like I need to prove something, you know, we butted heads, but that, that dude was, he, he loved me so, so good and so intensely. And it was just like a loved us. He was just a really beautiful person who, who uh, I missed dearly. Yeah. A beautiful, complicated, rich, amazing person who, I, who I'll never get to the bottom of, too. Yeah, right. I'd love to have you read a section from uh, Inciting Joy. And this is your, your dad is he's he's dying and, and you're visiting him, him in his in his bed and having this really intimate moment with him. And I'd love to have you have you read this section for us. Yeah. And this is at the end of this this essay. It's the second essay in this book, Inciting Joy. And um, and it sort of details the five or so months that, that he was dying from liver cancer. Um, and, and I was, you know, doing a PhD up at Temple and I was coaching basketball. So I had to sort of, I moved in and I was able to sort of be with him a lot. Um, and this is, you know, I got to set it up just a little bit sure. because my brother and I had been there the night before and we're at Mer- it's a Mercy Hospital in West Philly and where my uncle was a doctor. And um, we are like me and my brother kind of together are saying that I we need to get dad stronger because he was just sort of really failing and getting very weak. And so I was on my way to a gig or something and I and I turned around mid stride to this gig um, this morning that I'm sort of talking about here in the essay. And, and I went to like, you know, some sporting goods store and I got him like the little hand squeezers and I probably got him a couple bands and I, and the whole thing is I'm trying to, I'm going to go down there and start training my dad and get him better. Yeah. That was the dream. That yeah. was the dream. Yeah. When they finally said I could go see him and walk me into my father's room, it was nearly silent. 
no Judge Judy, no no ESPN, no TV at all. Just the quiet whir of the dialysis machine against the wall, plugged into my father, who was on his back and looked to be sleeping. His mouth and eyes were softly closed. He was breathing quietly. The blanket was pulled over his chest and his hands were at his side. I think the animal knew that it was official now. I had had my last conversation with my father. This part was over now. And I remember feeling frantic, trapped, as I kept asking him if he could hear me. My hand was on his chest. I was shaking him just a little, asking if he could hear me. Dad, can you hear me? And he stayed sleeping quietly. Can you hear me, Dad? Can you hear me? And by now, by now, I was crying hard. And I was kissing my father's face again and again, telling him I loved him again and again. It was the softest face in the world, my father's face. So quiet like that. I never knew it. I had never touched it before. I was crying onto his eyelids and cheeks and kissing him and telling him again and again, I loved him. I love you, dad. His brown face was lit with my tears. And with my forehead pressed into his and my hands on his cheeks, I noticed that my father had freckles sprinkled around the bridge of his nose and his upper cheeks. It was like a gentle broadcast of carrot seeds blending into his skin, flickering visible from this distance. It was through my tears I saw my father was a garden, or the two of us, or the all of us, not here long, maybe it is. And from that, what might grow? Mm, that's so beautiful. Thank you for reading that. Again, Ross Gay reading from a section from a book entitled Inciting Joy. I mean, there's so much there to talk about, but I love the fact that you just for, as you kissed your father and told him you loved him and were so close to his face, you saw you saw his freckles and you saw them as, as carrot seeds and a garden. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It was like one of these instances of like, you know, sort of to stay on theme, like the close, it was the closeness that was occasioned by the sorrow that, that sort of made me see my father better actually. Yeah. Your parents, they were an interracial couple. Your, your dad, your dad was black, your mom white. Did they, talk about race was that a, a big issue in your family a big topic of, of discussion it wasn't it wasn't um I feel like I feel like um there was enough sort of well it's still a puzzle to me it's still a puzzle yeah. to me there was enough sort of I think heartache and probably confusion around that that in a way I think their main objective and I could totally be wrong was to kind of, you know, maybe protect us by not saying much. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Do you think they did? I mean, did that protect you, do you think? No. (laughs) (laughs) Hard to know, right? (laughs) No, of course not. Of course not. But, But I fully understand it. I fully understand the desire. Yeah. When did they marry? I'm just, I was thinking, I, I actually Googled, you know, loving. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, loving. Yeah, 68, 68. Oh, because yeah. that Supreme Court decision that allowed for um, interracial marriage was 1967. So that's right. That was that's just, right. they got married a year later. Wow. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Your dad, uh, you and your dad would watch the 76ers like a lot of Philly sports <laughs> fans. And um, Dr. J in particular. And um, I wanted to have you read actually just a very small section from your book, Beholding. 
And this is a poem that goes on for 100 pages, so I really struggle to try to pull out something that got to this little moment. And then I do want to play a little clip from an interview I did with Dr. J about 10 years ago. But, but Ross, let's, let's hear this little section from your poem. Great, yeah. And I'm describing for, you know, some of your listeners are going to know exactly what I'm describing, but I'm. Um, it's from the 1980 NBA Finals where Dr. J makes what I think we will all agree is the best layup in the history of layups. Um, and it's the, you know, the, the, <laughs> I'll describe it a little bit. <laughs> um, it's the impossible layup that he yeah. makes. The whole of the spectrum become a kind of dew glistened web, shivering its gems in the gales as Irving went higher and now began to extend his right hand in a precise arc beginning precisely above his head, painting a broad and precise circle, not unlike Leonardo's Vitruvian man in his hula hoop of perfect proportions, if that little naked man wasn't little or naked and was palming a basketball and was flying through the trees. And I find myself again and again with my arm making the perfectly impossible circle again and again as I watch this clip on YouTube frame by frame clumsily on a computer with gummy keys and a post-it note covering the eye hole scrawled discipline on April 5th, 2015 at 1.48 a.m. Again and again thinking, what am I looking at? What am I seeing? Hmm. I love that. And I should just say, you you watch, it's about five seconds. I looked at it, but I didn't look at it as obsessively as you did for this poem. But you just kept looking at that five seconds and breaking it down into its component parts or its little pieces. Yeah. Yeah, and it's neat how you said it. You said the sort of a, in, in your earlier um, description of it, you said a kind of deconstruction. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a neat. I had never thought of it like that because in a way it feels like almost like a reconstruction of the move because each, everything that, you know, every like sort of sliver of the movement, it makes me, you know, it makes the poem go in some direction, you know, and whether it's the description of the actual move, what it looks like when Doc is at the end of the move and it looks almost like he's swimming or almost like he's crawling and that gets us to the ocean. Or when Kareem, who's playing defense, looks like, you know, looks like a tree, you know, that gets us someplace else. But Mm. But yeah, it's, it is a fascinating, you know, I don't have to say it to you all, but it's, it is just an impossibly beautiful moment of the imagination. That's what I like to think of it as. Well, let me play this clip. It's about a minute and it's from an interview I did with Dr. J from uh, about 10 years ago uh, when his book, Dr. J or his memoir, Dr. J had just come out. I watch a lot of films of you playing in preparation for this really? interview. Okay. Oh, of course. I, okay. I read your book as well. You go, girl. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you have such a, a beautiful movement. It's almost like choreography or some kind of dance movement, the, the sort of fluidity that you had on the basketball court. Mm. Did it feel that well, way Well, thank you? you for saying that. Well, but did it feel that way and for you? There was something that happened in my, in my early years, in my 20s. Uh, there was a Russian dancer named Edwin Valella. We did like sp- split screen movements oh, yeah? on a stage and they, they, they filmed it and, uh, you know, it was like do a pirouette. So he's the best at doing a pirouette <laughs> and he could he could do it. And then I would try to emulate it. And it was just a matter of trying to uh, identify the similarity between sports motions and dance. 
Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Ross, hold on to whatever thoughts you have because we have to take a very short break and then we'll get back to our conversation. We are talking with uh, Ross Gay. He just read us, read, excuse me, just read a section from his uh, poem called Beholding, and that was uh, Dr. J from an interview I did about 10 years ago. We're talking about uh, delight and joy and sports and poetry and writing and many things uh, today on The Connection, and we're going to take a very short break, and then we'll get back to our conversation don't so don't go anywhere we'll be right back Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at PennMedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. Our guest today on the show is Ross Gay. He's a writer and a poet and uh, read from a a poem called uh, Beholding about Dr. J. And we just heard a clip of Dr. J talking about the connection between sport and dance. And Ross, I just wanted to give you a chance to to weigh in on what you heard uh, Dr. J say. First of all, it was amazing. It was beautiful. God, I would love to see that. And second, I wonder if they had the dancer do Dr. J's moves, too. Oh, ew, that's interesting. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> but how beautiful is that? God, and good for whoever decided to do it. Great. It's interesting to think about sports and connection and, and uh, you know, the sort of power of of joy and delight and heartbreak, of course, it all goes hand in hand. Um, but as a, as a sports guy, how do you see that? The Say the question again, if you can. Well, just, you know, sports is, 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 seems to be almost quintessentially about delight and joy and heartbreak and sorrow and, you know, all, yeah. all the things that, that we've been talking about. It really is. And in a lot of ways, like one is, um, um, you know, I write a lot about pickup basketball, actually, and in that inciting joy book, I talk a lot about, I actually talk a lot about the courts that wow. are still at 10th and Lombard, but the courts as they were 10 years ago or something, 20 years ago, at 10th and Lombard, great courts. Um, but I think sport itself, I mean, it does all these things. One is like, it's sort of indica- it's indicative of time passing in all these ways. One is that, you know, say a basketball game, like a pro game is what, you know, 48 minutes i guess mm-hmm. um and but inside of that is this other thing that is much more dramatic in a way and it's that the players themselves as they play are aging you know so it's not only i mean i think all of the you know we love our teams and we want to win and all this stuff but there's a more sort of intense and meaningful um thing going on to me which is that we're sort of witnessing mortality play out you know because we, we know their time is short on, on the court. Uh, and, and in those kinds of games, it's just like, uh, you know, it's it's 
it's different than chess, I guess. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know right. anything about chess. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, you know, probably you different injured. than golf. Probably different, yeah, probably different than golf, you know. But in basketball, like if you play to be 33 years old, you got a long, you got a long thing, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and, and anyway, so I feel like there's so many, there's so many, not only to, not to mention that there's all of these um, collaborations that the games, a lot of the games that I love, but I also love like, you know, individual games too. But like ball, for instance, it's all this collaborative stuff that is happening that is, you know, you can't, it's hard to sort of imagine the depth of the collaboration that happens on a court. It's also so moving to me that the beautiful things that happen on the court require the beautiful attempts to keep them from happening by the, by an opponent. Like Dr. J's move is eight times more beautiful, not only because Landsberger tried to tried to block his shot or keep it from making it, but because Kareem was down there <laughs> trying to make that happen, you know? You know, it's interesting as you're reading that and you say the line again and again, which reminds me of the throwing children, you know, again and again, throw me in the air again and again. Yeah. Yeah. I find myself saying that a lot again and again. I got to I got to figure out why <laughs> I, I do. Yeah. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's like a. I know, I'm doing it for a reason, but yeah. I haven't yet exactly articulated it. When did you start? When did you discover poetry? I mean, discovered you had a an affiliation, a, a connection to poetry. Um, I think in a real way. I mean, in a in a sort of official way. I was taking a class at Lafayette College. Um, I was, you know, playing football. As we discussed, it wasn't going well. I was sort of depressed. I was doing really poorly in school, and I um, had a professor who. Um, in an American, you know, poetry class, had me give a presentation on the poet Amiri Baraka. Oh, wow. and it changed my life. And That's... I started reading. I started reading poems in a very serious way. Was there a particular um, Amiri Baraka poem that that? Yeah, you... a poem called "An Agony as Now." And uh, it's it's just a, an incredibly beautiful poem that. It's so interesting to think of myself as like a 19 year old kid who hadn't done a lot of reading actually at that point you know i'd read comic books and stuff like that but i really wasn't a big reader until around this time actually so it's interesting to think of that kid reading this poem which is such a powerful complicated poem that when i read it today i'm still really moved by it and still kind of puzzled by it you know it's a, amazing poem but I also want to say it feels very important to me to say that I was deeply into music you know and so I studied the lyrics of like De La Soul and hmm. Tracy Chapman and um, Public Enemy and all you know all these folks um, Earth, Wind and Fire I can be speaking to my dad I could, who, my dad was a big big reader he was always reading I can remember listening to um, the record player with the headphones on one time when they're watching dinner watching a TV or something and I remember reading along to the lyrics of Earth, Wind, and Fire, and I could hear through the headphones my dad say, well, at least he's reading something. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some truth to that, though, isn't there? Totally. I, and I feel like deep, I was just listening to Tracy Chapman again uh, the other day, that first record, first and second records, but at that first record. And I was like, this was so significant to the way that I sort of, um, I mean, I was drawn to it, I'm sure, because I sort of vibed with what she was saying, but but I 
I feel like it was also so instructive in terms of a kind of, you know, like even like a political sensibility and an aesthetic sensibility, you know? So I feel like, and I could go on and on and on about where it kind of starts, you know, that my folks, you know, were, you know, they were beautiful talkers in their ways, you know? Um, I feel like I learned from them and, you know, living where I live, I feel like I, there's so many points of origin to to how one starts doing this thing. Well, and there is a kind, I won't say stream of consciousness exactly, but about your writing where it, it just keeps going, sort of like conversation, people talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, that's something I aspire to for sure, like an attempt to sort of make the voice sound like a real voice, which is, you know, inspired by a lot of people. But one of them, I should say, because he was actually on your show at some point, um, the old show, is the poet Gerald Stern. Oh, gosh, um, yeah. Yeah, he was oh. one of my, he was a teacher and he was a, a beloved friend and like a real mentor. And in a lot of his poems, he had a way of talking, really talking. Yeah. There are a lot of people who showed me that, but Jerry definitely showed me how to do that. Yeah, a character, if there ever was one. Yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Let me just quickly reintroduce you. That's uh, Ross Gay. He's a, he's a writer. He's a poet. And we've been talking about his, his new book called The Book of More Delights. And he wrote a book last year called Inciting Joy and a book a couple of years ago called Beholding. And uh, he won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Catalog of Unabashed gratitude. Ross, I'd like love to have you read just one small section from the Book of More Delights. And this is just a little, almost like a little sidebar. You're a young boy with your brother in the car and your mom has run into the store to, to grab as you say, either milk or eggs or bread or something like that. But I'd love to have you read this little section. Just real quick, do you do you there's a, there's like kind of the footnote or do you want me to That's read the foot the... Yeah, I was thinking the footnote. I would be okay. remiss. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I like that. Okay. Yeah, okay. it's fun. Yeah, let me read this footnote. So let me just say that the the um the to set it up, the essay is basically about how dear I find ad- uh braces on adults, uh, maybe particularly on on um adult men. And but I go on to sort of talk about how I never had braces. And partly it's because my mother, um, one time I had an accident with my teeth and oh, my gosh. mother fixed them. And my mother fixed them. All that being said, we're down at the what used to be the Sears per- surplus down on Roosevelt Boulevard down there um, in Northeast. And I was outside and I was swinging on the thing that kept the carts in back in the day. And I fell and I this was the accident and I busted my face and and I, but I make a point and I say the point is that it was very reasonable that if the kids didn't want to go into the store they should be able to hang out and play <laughs> in the parking lot unheard of she, today right <laughs> I know I know she would be arrested for that today <laughs> anyway and here's the footnote um I say, I say this she also left us in the car when we were little sometimes to grab some milk and it's like a miracle or something we survived footnote I would be remiss, though, to admit that one time my mother parked the car right in front of the convenience store, close enough she could see us the whole time as she ran in to get some milk. Isn't it always milk they're running in to get? Maybe eggs? Leaving my big brother and me inside, sans car seats or seatbelts, which I guess upset me, either her being gone or our still being in her sight, not sure. So I started crying. My brother tried with his voice and probably hands to soothe me. It wouldn't be the last time telling me I'd be okay and such. He's good like that. 
was always looking out for me. But when the more conventional modes of soothing didn't work, he tried the cigarette lighter, placing it on my pointer finger, which didn't exactly soothe me, though it took my mind from whatever had been bugging me. That, too, we survived, as did our relationship. Though I keep my distance from him when he has ignatory tools in his hand, I feel, though I keep my distance from him when he has ignatory tools in hand, I feel as close to him as ever, which, you won't be surprised, makes our mom, whom I call old ma, so, so glad. <laughs> I love those little private <laughs> moments among children, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's sweet. It's sweet. Um, emphatic that uh, <laughs> it was okay that, they, that she... <laughs> I don't want someone to say, see, that's why they shouldn't have been, you know. <laughs> you have said that uh, one of the things that you teach your students is something called, or maybe it's a book or an essay called The Art of the Mistake by Patrick mm. Royal. And you describe it as one of the best essays about making poems and art. What do you mean by that? What What is it about? Yeah, so it's by the poet Patrick Rosal, um, R-O-S-A-L. Oh, and, Rosal, uh, yeah. Yeah, beautiful poet um, and essayist. And um, he, in the essay, he's taught, he tells this story about, you know, he's a, he was a breaker and uh, he tells an essay, uh, tells a story about being dancing. Um, and they're in a battle and one of his crew um, does a move called a suicide where you do kind of a front flip um, and land on your back. Hmm. And this kid, he did the flip and he caught his shoe, his, his shoe he threw his shoe from his foot in the air and caught it and put it to his head like it was a phone or something as he landed. And they won. That was it. And everyone was like, how'd you learn to do that? And he said, it was an accident. I just happened to, my shoe was loose and it flew off when I flipped and I happened to, it hit me in the hand and I caught it and I slid it like I meant to do it. So anyway, the, that's, and so that's how, that's how it happened. And the, I think the kind of guiding lesson of the, of the essay is something like so often when we're making work where, you know, it's so often the things that are most beautiful about our work are the things that um, surprise us that we didn't mean to do that sort of um, happen outside of our control and that we kind of, you know, manage to catch, you know, it's that sort of a way of putting it. We manage to see mm -hmm. it um, instead of imposing what we think ought to be there. We let the thing that happened maybe by accident, maybe by mistake, and we look at it and we think, oh, Sometimes that's better than anything I could have done intentionally. Sure, sure. I, I was reading some interesting science about um, gratitude and, and the things that we have been talking about. And it's interesting when you see art and science coming together or colliding. Then, and, and even thinking about the lonely ep loneliness epidemic that we apparently are in is that, is that there are, are measurable objective objective. Uh, health results from things like gratitude. It actually helps people's both mental and physical health. Does that surprise you? Not at all. I mean, again, if it's a practice of witnessing the ways that we're cared for, we have been cared for, and if it's also um, um, the ways of, of um, noticing how we're connected, which really I think gratitude is, mm -hmm. it it makes perfect sense. And it makes extra sense that we would be talking about this in the midst of a kind of, you know, like, <laughs> it's just, it is what it is, you know, it's just like hard to sort of um, not notice how many people in public places don't look up anymore. 
Because they're looking at their phones, right? Yeah, exactly. And on and on and on and on. As though that's real life, you know. And I understand sometimes, you know, whatever. Um, but also, you know, we're we're there's a lot of sort of pressure to forget that we are in fact amidst each other, you know, blessedly so. You have a we don't have time to to do justice to it, but you described the the first hug you gave post I don't know if we're post-pandemic exactly, but when you felt it was safe to hug someone who was a stranger and you wrote about what that experience was like. <laughs> I did. And then the, the uh, <laughs> if I had more time, I'd read the little section of it. because. Yeah. It's, um, but yeah, yeah, really important, really important that we, uh, that we pay close attention to um, our being together. I think that's it. That we practice it. That we we practice it. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, we're almost out of time here. I was reading about a guy named Derek Downey Jr. who has developed this incredible relationship, I can say that, bond with a squirrel that started following him around. uh, And he apparently built him a little house. And he has all these uh, TikTok followers of this man who befriended a squirrel, which, you know, when I was thinking about what do we... When we look for things to give us delight, um, and I don't think I would have resonated with that, Ross, if I hadn't been thinking about delight and joy and connection. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's moving. You know, one of the things that I learned about um, delight as I was writing this book was how often, two things maybe, how often I was moved by um, witnessing people looking out for each other, caring for each other, but also this thing which is like, or, you know, that and then also this thing which is like i became aware how often when i witnessed that thing i wanted to tell other people about it yeah you know like if i saw this person you know like i love on my campus where i teach there's often kids college kids um who are adults often (laughs) sitting there feeding the squirrels you know (laughs) and i when i see it if i'm with someone i'm gonna point it out because i love it I'm a big fan of squirrels. And and Ross Gay, of you as well. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Connection. It's so good to talk with you. I've listened to you for so many years. It's just really a pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you you so much. And again, Ross Gay has several new books, relatively new books. The newest one, The Book of More Delights, Inciting Joy. And we also talked about one called Be Holding. Al Banks, the engineer for today's edition of The Connection. The show is produced by Debbie Builder and Paige Murray-Bessler. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Thank you so much for joining us.